We all learned in school about the Leaning Tower of Pisa. But just now, we're learning about the Leaning Nuclear Tower at the Vogel site in Georgia. Nuclear officials are poo-pooing the fact that two interior walls in the currently being built nuclear reactor are now only two inches apart instead of three, and they're asking the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for an expedited change to their licensing agreement because, hey, it's no big deal, right? And we got to get this nuke up and running. But then you hear a genuine expert, a licensed nuclear reactor operator and engineer with more than 40 years experience in the field, who is familiar with the situation, and he tells you... They mention in there that they have been watching the foundation sink for at least five years. So they've known about this for half a decade. And right at the very end, right before they're anticipating starting up in less than a year now, they suddenly need this rush licensing request because a wall has moved. Well, they knew that wall was moving five years ago and they knew the foundation was sinking five years ago. And still they waited till now. Well, when Arnie Gunderson points out the obvious about a serious flaw in a still-being-built nuclear reactor and does so in such unequivocal terms, you start to realize that not only the state of Georgia, but all of us are once again being dumped into that seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, two interviews on breaking stories. With word that the still-under-construction Vogel nuclear reactor is sinking into the red clay of Georgia, we talk with Arnie Gunderson, chief engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education, the man who did the data analysis that led to a petition to be filed with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to stop construction and revoke the plant's license. And with COVID-19 cases raging through the Millstone Nuclear Facility in Waterford, Connecticut, including in the control room, we talk with Nancy Burton, director of the Connecticut Coalition Against Millstone, on what her group is doing to try to stop the refueling process in order to protect the workers and their health. We will also have our international COVID-19 nuclear update, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than we've managed to get to Rachel Maddow so far. All of it is coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 19, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off our COVID-19 nuclear report, 
The Nuclear Information Resource Service and 85 other organizations have called for immediate action on COVID-19 as regards the nuclear industry. They state that lax regulation has caused increased risk of infection among workers and rural America and elevated nuclear safety risks. The letter was sent to Vice President Mike Pence, chair of the Coronavirus Task Force, and six federal agencies. The groups call for an immediate, multi-agency, industry-wide response to protect nuclear workers and the rural and suburban communities where facilities are located and to ensure nuclear safety is not compromised. The letter calls for an interagency COVID-19 nuclear task force to develop plans and protective measures for nuclear workers and reactor operators, an immediate halt to additional refueling and decommissioning operations at nuclear power stations until the task force has developed and licensees have implemented site-specific plans to protect workers and prevent the spread of the disease in host regions, reconsider increased overtime limits for nuclear workers, now allowable at 86 hours of work per week because increased fatigue affects workers' vulnerability to COVID-19 and nuclear safety, and that all requests to postpone and exempt maintenance and inspections will be subject to a cumulative risk analysis and review by the COVID-19 task force. The Millstone Nuclear Facility in Waterford, Connecticut, has been a hotbed of COVID-19 speculation since May 5th, when word broke in the media that 10 workers on site had tested positive for the novel coronavirus. This in the middle of a refueling process that requires hundreds of outside workers to descend upon the facility and the community. But the story runs much deeper and uglier than that, as was revealed in a press release from the group Connecticut Coalition Against Millstone. Rather than read you that press release, I spoke with Nancy Burton. She is director of the Connecticut Coalition Against Millstone and joined us on Monday, May 18, 2020, just hours after the press release hit social media. Nancy Burton, thanks so much for joining us on such short notice here on Nuclear Hot Seat. My pleasure. There was a press release that just hit as of today, May 18, 2020, regarding the Millstone nuclear power plant, and this was a release put out by the Connecticut Coalition against Millstone. In it, you state that as of April 24th or sooner, the state of Connecticut knew of 11 Millstone employees who had tested positive for COVID-19 and that some of them are licensed operators who work in crews at the Unit 2 and 3 control rooms at Millstone. Federal and state regulators withheld this information from the public. How did Connecticut Coalition Against Millstone get that information? Well, first off, of course, we started off by inquiring of the NRC, and they refused to give us information about the potential incidence of uh, the COVID-19 infection among control workers. They would not answer that question. They said, ask the company. So then we inquired of the company. They didn't return our calls. So we took the next step. And there was, by the way, no information out of the state of Connecticut. The first we heard of this was on May 4th when there was an article in the local newspaper that said there had been this number of employees of Millstone who had tested positive for COVID-19, but it did not say what their positions were. 
So we followed up with a Freedom of Information request to the State of Connecticut Department of Environmental Protection and specifically to the director of the Radiation Bureau. His job is to protect the public in the state of Connecticut. His name is Jeffrey Semantic. And lo and behold, his previous job was operating Millstone Unit 3 in the control room. So we fired off a Freedom of Information request, and we were astounded to receive the information back from him. It's a direct quote from his email that the number 11, which was at that time the confirmed number of COVID-19 infected employees, included members of the crew that operate as licensed operators, the control rooms at Millstone Units 2 and 3. That was a startling revelation that had been suppressed from revelation to the public for probably two weeks. So that's extremely troublesome because we found out through the Freedom of Information Act, we would not otherwise have found out because this is a big bad secret for the nuclear industry. I've been covering the COVID nuclear connection since late February. And every week I was doing a rundown of how many cases were showing up and where they were showing up. And I had one on a show with Paul Gunter that aired on the 24th of March. On March 27, that Friday, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in a webinar stated that they were no longer going to be providing the numbers of positive cases at any nuclear facility. I don't know whether I was part of that or not, but certainly March 27 far predates the time when you actually got this information. Now, how early is it now believed that the state knew about the COVID cases at Millstone? Well, there had been a another employee, but he worked in the warehouse department who had been tested uh, for positive, I think it was on the 13th of the month, but it was not until uh, the 24th or sooner that the state of Connecticut received the information from Dominion that there were 11 positive identifications that included control room operators at units two and three. And April 24th was the date that the refueling outage was supposed to begin. And yet, even though the state knew about it and could have either delayed or canceled the refueling, keeping the reactors offline, yet it allowed it to go forward. This is the definition of nuclear madness. Because the licensed control room operators, there have to be four of them, 24-7 at Millstone Unit 2, according to its license. And if one of them is pressing buttons on the control panel that regulate the reactor, that regulate radiation releases, that regulate radiation release monitoring, and, of course, all of the other elements of operating a a very dangerous nuclear power plant, if that individual is contaminated, he may or may not know it, or she, then it's very likely that there is a good possibility that those nearby may also be contaminated. I mean, this is what we've been hearing all these several months, the particularly contagious nature of this disease. And what is extraordinary here is the admission by Mr. Semancic that the social distancing is virtually impossible. Those are not his words, but he says in his email, 
April 26, it was an email that he wrote to an individual who is in another agency of the state of Connecticut. They were carrying on a conversation by email. Not to me, you know, it was an intra-governmental email that was disclosed through the Freedom of Information Act. But what he mentioned was that, quote, while they try to maintain social distancing, there are space limits, unquote. I think that's an understatement. On nuclear hot seat number 458, which was on March 31st, we interviewed nuclear engineer and licensed nuclear reactor operator Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. And he's been in and around nuclear reactor operating centers. And he explained that social distancing in a reactor control room is absolutely impossible. Right. That is what we heard from Mr. Semantic. It is the opposite of what we heard from the NRC. When I contacted the official spokesman, there was a big attempt to reassure me that social distancing was being practiced um, to the extent that would give one confidence. And that seems to be not the case, according to Mr. Semantic. But equally troublesome is this comment from Mr. Semantic in the email, quote, they also have to manipulate switches and buttons, many that can't be easily cleaned due to concerns about inadvertent actuation, unquote. Once again, talk about understatement, because if you have four licensed operators there running the plant, pressing buttons, and there's an inadvertent pressing of the button that controls activities, let's say, in the reactor, and the reactor is shut down, and you have 750 contract workers from various places, not employees of Millstone, strangers to the plant, probably most of them, and they are pressing buttons by mistake in the control room in an effort to clean the buttons and sanitize them, this sounds like kindergarten play, except it's the most perilous thing you can imagine. Imagine a pandemic, as we have now, that runs the risk of having nuclear power plant operators diseased, spreading their disease, and pressing buttons unintentionally that cause the reactor to do things nobody ever wanted. I mean, it makes you think of Chernobyl, for one. You know, the things that happen when when there's human error, which is avoidable. Here, when the first information came in about positive COVID-19 test results among employees at Millstone, the only rational sane to do would have been to shut both plants down. Once they'd identified that this disease had infected workers at both units two and three control rooms. There's also another issue in play here that say they had said, okay, well, these guys have tested positive, so we're just going to pull them out and grab some nuclear engineers and facility operators from other nukes and plug them into Millstone. Why would that work or not work? They could do that. However, it would be illegal, and it would be in clear violation of the license, which mandates that only operators who have been certified for a particular nuclear power plant, such as Millstone, are permitted to actually operate it. So, see, that's the problem here, that the group of certified operators of a nuclear power plant is very limited. Remember, you have to have four of them, minimum, working around the clock. Not the same four, but a group of four. 
And with this terrible virus, as we've been hearing, many people who are affected with it are asymptomatic. And so you just don't know. And so it's just playing Russian roulette with our health and safety. And particularly at a time when power usage is down now and people aren't carrying on businesses and running factories the way they used to uh, and requiring the amount of electricity that they used to. It's absolutely, um, I can't fathom what is going on in the minds of the leaders of our state and country. What is Connecticut Coalition Against Millstone now asking? We are asking, in light of this uh, information, which is explosive, from the state's own top official for radiation, that the state bring a halt not only to the refueling outage, but to the operations of the two nuclear power plants immediately. And that seems to be the only rational, sensible thing to do if the state of Connecticut has a concern about protecting the public health and safety and not just the profitability of the nuclear industry. How can the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat support you? It's not so easy to recommend a way to get through because we contacted the governor, the governor's office. We contacted Senator Richard Blumenthal's office, Senator Chris Murphy's office, Congressman Joe Courtney, that Millstone is in his district, all of those offices, and were assured in messages that came on that individuals would receive and review and act upon the messages that they would be receiving at their homes because they were working at home during this uh, entire crisis. That was a week ago, and we haven't heard a single word back from any of them. So as far as getting in touch with their elected representatives, I'm not saying don't bother. I mean, it would be the most wonderful thing if there would be a huge lineup of people trying to get through. I think that that's what it takes, a groundswell of people contacting and demanding of the governor that he shut these plants down while this pandemic is afoot. Nancy, it's clear that you and the Connecticut Coalition Against Millstone are doing everything you possibly can. Whatever you have in terms of phone numbers or email or any other connected information, get that to me. I will put that up on the Nuclear Hot Seat website so that people will have an easy way of accessing the information and be able to perhaps create that groundswell and that surge of awareness in the if not the regulators, at least in the governor of the state of Connecticut, and do what they can to help you get Millstone shut down. That's terrific of you, Libby. And we'll also be posting that information on our website, which is mothballmillstone.org. Thanks for all the terrific work that you are doing, Nancy Burton, and keep us informed here at Nuclear Hot Seat. Will do. Thank you, Libby, for your excellent journalism. Thank you. That was Nancy Burton. Director of Connecticut Coalition Against Millstone. The group's website is mothballmillstone.org, and we will have a link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 465. More COVID nuclear news. On March 31st, at the Fermi 2 reactor in Michigan, there was one positive test for COVID-19. Now, as of May 13th, 
237 workers at DTE Energy's Ferry 2 nuclear reactor have tested positive for the novel coronavirus. This during the ongoing refueling and maintenance outage, the exact time that we warned that there was going to be the greatest risk for transmission of the disease among the workers. The reactor shut for refueling and maintenance on March 21st, bringing in hundreds of outside workers. And on May 1st, DTE implemented a stand-down that has interrupted the outage. That's the latest word that we have. By comparison, in Japan, Kyushu Electric Power Company suspended work to build an anti-terrorism facility at its Genkai nuclear power plant after a worker there, a single worker there, tested positive for the novel coronavirus on April 14th. All civil engineering work at the nuclear plant was halted on the night of April 14th, and the company said it does not know when it can restart the project. 300 other workers who may have come in contact with their infected colleague have been ordered to stay home. One possibly positive result of the COVID-19 pandemic is that even supporters of increased U.S. defense budgets expect that because the U.S. government will likely spend trillions of dollars trying to rescue the economy from the effects of COVID-19, military spending in the United States is likely to decline significantly over the next couple of years. Some important information on the nuclear connection, and we will have a link up to this article on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 465. And now... Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat, none that's out of the week. Because the nuclear industry perceives that one of its biggest problems is that they can't build new nukes fast and cheap enough, they've now come up with a new plan. 3D printing of a nuclear reactor core. A nuclear reactor core is responsible for holding the uranium fuel and the components that control the fission reaction. The advantages being touted, get this, are that there's no need to use ultrasound or other expensive means to test for defects. Just train a machine to learn the algorithm to check the data to verify that the parts are okay. It's faster and it's cheaper. And the two words you never want to hear in connection with anything nuclear are fast and cheap. And that's why engineers at Oak Ridge who came up with this, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Over to Japan where a recent editorial in Asahi, a highly respected daily newspaper, states that Japan should end its nonsensical effort to recycle nuclear fuel. The editorial states that while Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Authority approved a draft report on the safety inspection of the reprocessing plant being built in Rokasho, Japan's policy program to establish a nuclear fuel recycling system to recover plutonium from spent nuclear fuel to be reused in reactors is already bankrupt beyond redemption. And it does not make sense because of the many problems, including nuclear proliferation, cost-effectiveness, energy security, and other important policy issues. South Korea has been rallying against Japan's plans to release radioactive water from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean, and now they have set their navy to study the impact of radioactive water on the local seas. 
The Navy plans to commission research into the potential impact of radioactive water within its operational areas on its maritime operations and ways to stably carry out missions. In Norway, an investigation at that country's now-closed Halden research reactor reveals that results from a number of nuclear fuel experiments were tampered with in an effort that was, quote, planned and well hidden, according to the facility's operator a discovery that could have consequences for numerous nuclear power utilities around the world. According to Frederick Hogg, president of Bologna, the international nuclear watchdog group, what scares us is that companies around the world operating nuclear reactors may have relied on data from the Halden reactor. If data has been manipulated, security can be jeopardized because the research is used to make decisions about how the reactors are operated and from ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, comes this bit of good news. Despite the lockdown of the United Nations Office for Legal Affairs, Belize has ratified the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. This means that 37 countries have ratified and that we're only 13 more away from the treaty entering into force and becoming international law. We'll have this week's other featured interview in just a moment. But first, yes, the nuclear industry continues to take COVID-19 risks with the health and safety of its workers, which means that all of us are put at risk of facing a nuclear accident as a result. And there is no such thing as safe exposure to radioactivity, just as there is no safe exposure to COVID. Both are invisible, deadly, and even though they work on vastly different timelines, either one can do us in. And while mainstream media is filled with COVID-19 stories, they have not been covering the nuclear aspect as a matter of course. That's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We'll look at the nuclear aspect of our world every week, and especially now with the COVID-19 impact on worker safety reactor safety, and the nuclear industry's manipulations during this time of fear and confusion. Nuclear Hot Seat is the only place you can count on every week to continue to report on the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth about the COVID nuclear connection, while not dropping the ball on other nuclear stories around the world. But I've got to be honest with you. Since COVID hit, things have been challenging, and I really need your help. There are monthly, quarterly, and annual fees just to have the tools necessary to produce, host, post, and support the show. To keep things going, now more than ever, your help is needed. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to help us with a donation of any size. Please do what you can now. And know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here's this week's featured interview. If you're a regular listener to Nuclear Hot Seat, you've heard Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education before, explaining the complexities of nuclear reactors and the industry in terms that are easy to understand, even if they are quite terrifying. Today's talk is no exception as we discuss recently exposed problems with one of the new Vogel nuclear reactors being built in Georgia. Arne Gunderson has more than 45 years of nuclear power engineering experience. He holds a nuclear safety patent, 
was a licensed reactor operator and is a former nuclear industry senior vice president. During his nuclear power industry career, Arnie managed and coordinated projects at 70, 70 nuclear power plants in the United States. He and I spoke on Sunday, May 17, 2020. Arnie Gunderson, always a pleasure to have you with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks for having me. I love being on your show. Let's start out with a sense of your history of investigating or working on issues with the Vogel site. Well, the Vogel site has two operating nukes on it that started in the 80s, and they were supposed to be built for a billion, and they were finally built for nine billion. So cost overruns at Vogel go way, way back. So at the beginning of the 21st century, there was a nuclear renaissance, and the company that provides electricity in Georgia wanted to build two more nuclear power plants at Vogel. So they're Vogel 3 and 4. They uh, were supposed to be done in 2016, and um, they were supposed to cost probably $10 billion, and they won't be done until 2022, and they're going to cost $30 billion. So the history of cost overruns and nuclear at Vogel continues. But I got interested in the AP-1000 when Vogel wasn't even being constructed yet. I looked at some design flaws in it. Actually, I was invited to speak to the advisory committee on reactor safeguards for an hour and a half. And that presentation's up on the Fairwind site. But they built a reactor to avoid some problems with the reactors that are operating at Vogel. But in the process, they've created problems that they didn't anticipate. There's an example of that. When the Titanic sunk, they mandated extra lifeboats on boats. And one boat sunk because it had extra lifeboats and it was top heavy. So, you know, engineers try to correct one problem and cause another. And Vogel's like that. It's got a different set of problems. And I've been following Vogel now for uh, more than 10 years. So the AP-1000 is the design that they chose for Vogel 3 and 4. Yeah, there were at one point a, close to two dozen AP-1000s scheduled to be built in the United States. It was going to be the new nuclear renaissance. And uh, as costs escalated and renewables became cheaper, 18 backed out and the only two being built in the United States right now, and there's none on the drawing boards either. So the only two being built in the United States of any kind of reactor are the AP-1000s at Vogel. The Public Service Commission in um, Georgia is very pro-nuclear. They're doing it not because it's cheap for the ratepayers, but because America needs a nuclear industry. And in fact, experts like uh, Mark Cooper, Peter Bradford, and I, we've been talking about how this plant was doomed for a decade now. But the Public Service Commission actually overrode its own staff. The staff told them five years ago that the plant was going to be too expensive and should be shut down. And the Public Service Commission overrode their own staff. One example is that one of the Public Service Commissioners was running for it's an elected office. And the nuclear industry chipped in a million bucks for his political campaign so he would get re-elected. 
uh, it's probably the most biased public service commission I've ever seen. The net effect is people in Georgia are going to be stuck with the last nuke running 80 years from now. Vogel, assuming it lasts that long, it's going to be overpriced. Renewables are going to be eating its lunch. And what do you do after you've spent $30 billion on a power plant? It's going to be an albatross around Georgia's neck forever. Last month, Southern Nuclear Operating Company, Vogel's owner, tried to amend its operating license with information that had been kept secret from the public. What was that information that they covered up, and why has it come to the fore now? They told the NRC that a wall inside the plant was um, supposed to have three inches of gap between another wall, and in fact, it only had two. Uh, so they're portraying this, it's called a seismic gap. You know, sometimes when you're in cities, you'll see buildings constructed with a gap between them. And that's for fire. It's a fire gap. But in a nuclear plant, sometimes they'll have one wall and then a, a couple inch gap in case one wall falls, the other wall doesn't. So they said, well, our seismic gap was supposed to be three, but it's only two. It's no big deal. But they were disguising the real problem. They didn't build it that way. They built these walls so they were three inches apart like they should have been, but the building moved under them and they haven't been telling anybody about this. We discovered it because in the licensing application, they provided a little bit of information, hardly any, but they alluded to the fact that the building is sinking in the middle because it weighs so much and rising on the outside. So it sort of looks like a dish. And, and in fact, that's what the phenomena is called when you put a big, heavy structure on dirt. Remember when you take a, when you walk on mud, your foot leaves a footprint. Well, this structure is bowing downward and it's dishing and that's causing the walls to move. So they're claiming that they built it wrong, but in fact, they built it right and the building moved under it. And, and that's a big deal. So they were trying to hide the big deal that their building is sinking and sneaking it through as the fact that, well, we constructed two walls that are uh, out of spec, but it's only an inch, don't worry about it. What are the dangers that are represented by this dishing, the sinking in the middle and the rising up on the outside of it? The problem here is that as an expert, we don't get to see, the public doesn't get to see all the analysis. That what happens is, and, and this happened on San Onofre too, the utility controls the paper. The NRC guy walks into their room, reads the paper, and leaves it on the desk. That means he hasn't taken possession of it. If he took it and walked out to his hotel room and read it in the hotel room, he would have possession, and you and I and, and other concerned citizens would get to see it. Well, that's what's happening at Vogel. Vogel has just informed the NRC that the building is sinking. And the NRC has a, has a really great deal with Vogel, not for you and I, but for Vogel. They go to an electronic reading room. And as long as it stays on the computer and they don't print a hard copy and walk out, they never had possession of the document. So that means it's not available to the general public. Yeah. Yeah, it's not in the public document room. So the NRC is reviewing in secret 
all these documents and we're supposed to believe that the NRC is totally objective. But in fact, what's happening is they're being provided on a computer screen. They read it. They don't even take notes because then the notes would be public. They walk out and they talk about it and then they write their report based on their impressions. And also that would be what they remember of what they wrote. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got the 40-page license application, and in that is only about 10 pages of technical meat. And there's a lot of interesting things in there, the, the technical one, and then also a broader ethical issue, and we can talk about that too. But what's happening is that, you know, this building was supposed to be flat, and all of the seismic analysis, how waves travel through the ground and all that kind of stuff, was based on a flat building. But if the bottom is bowed, then the seismic waves interact with the building differently and cause it to to wiggle differently. So it's not clear to me and and other experts that Vogel can withstand the earthquake it was supposed to withstand because it's now bowing. So we've asked the NRC to um, postpone the license, redo the uh, seismic analysis of the whole building. There was a line in the application that says, well, if the wall were to fall, because of the way the building is bowing, the two walls would fall in opposite directions, and that's okay. It's not okay. These walls aren't supposed to fall in the first place. So unfortunately, we're left out in the dark. Even experts retain that. The intervener here is Brettel, Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League. A big shout out to, to Brettel. They've been uh, at this at Vogel and, and on other environmental projects throughout the Blue Ridge Mountains for decades now. But Brettel and you and I and anybody else who wants to dig into this are stuck with essentially a 10-page part of a 40-page application. And from that, we were able to determine that the building's sinking and um, based on you know my experience, I, we learned that it's not going to react the way it should have if there's an earthquake. Now, you wrote the expert interpretation, the expert report. How did you become involved with Brettel, and why were you the person who stepped forward and actually did this? Well, I worked with Brettel on a couple of problems associated with Vogel. There was a, a situation where they poured concrete walls wrong and they were closer than they should have been. And in construction, sometimes those things happen. There was another case where they discovered that they could have a hydrogen explosion inside the containment and they needed to put more hydrogen igniters in the containment than they had planned for. That got my attention because, uh, you know, I've been studying containment failures for more than a decade now. And so actually in a nuclear plant, they have these little flames that are always burning. So if the hydrogen starts to build up, it burns before it explodes. And that's called a hydrogen igniter. And as long as those things work, in theory, you won't get a a Fukushima. Well, Vogel discovered they didn't have enough of them. And so they put some more in and I work with Brettel on that as well. It's very difficult as an expert to to make a a good argument here because they're hiding 99% of the data is hidden 
because they have these private reading rooms with the NRC and the NRC never takes possession of the information. Is there any way to force that information out into the open? If the appeal moves, Brettel should have the opportunity to get some in discovery. Um, but you got to get over that first wall first, and that's with the, uh, there'll be an Atomic Safety and Licensing Board that will determine if you've got any idea what you're talking about. And of course, the other guys are hiding 99.9% of the cards they've got in their hand. So it's difficult getting over that hurdle. If you get over that hurdle, in theory, you should get some, um, some information through discovery. What you're referring to is the fact that on Tuesday, May 12th, Brettel issued a press release about Vogel's problems and that they had taken a legal action the day before. What was the legal action that Brettel filed? They filed a petition with the NRC to intervene based on this license request, the fact that the, they call it a seismic gap, the gap only changed by an inch, but they had to file, and Brettel filed a uh, request to intervene on that issue. So on the Fairwinds website and on the Brettel website, there's the request to intervene, which is a, a legal document outlining the basis for why you have the right to intervene. And then there's the technical report that went along with it. And Fairwinds has a 16-page technical analysis of this problem. You know, it's not the first time it's happened. There was a plant in Midland, Michigan, that was, uh, they actually had to walk away from it after it was built because it was sinking. The foundation wasn't, wasn't adequate. So this thing has a historical precedent that can potentially stop the unit from ever being built. And there's $15 billion on the line. So we expect robust pushback from Vogel. You said that there were two points to what Brettel had filed with the NRC. What is the other one? Well, when I was reading the uh, 40-page document that Vogel provided, they mentioned in there that they have been watching the foundation sink for at least five years. So they've known about this for half a decade. And right at the very end, right before they're anticipating starting up in less than a year now, they suddenly need this rush licensing request because a wall has moved. Well, they knew that wall was moving five years ago and they knew the foundation was sinking five years ago. So, you know, it's that, um, that Nixon quote, uh, what did they know and when did they know it? That's what Lou wants to discover. Lou Zeller is the, uh, the head of Brettel. And Brettel's point is, why did you wait five years to tell the world that your building is sinking and that walls are moving? The concept of materially false statement is you can lie, but if it doesn't affect the outcome of a decision, it's not an important lie. But if the lie affects the outcome of the decision, then it's material. So that's a materially false statement. And Brattle has alleged that this five-year delay and right at the very end rushing this wall through is, is materially false. So they've asked not just for a technical evaluation of the sinking of the building, but also um, investigators, you know, guys with badges and guns, interviewing people to find out when did they know, how long has this building been sinking, and when did they discover it, 
And why did they wait five years to tell people about it? It's an interesting, uh, it, it's a good read. If, if you um, go up on the Fairwind site or on the Brettle site, you can read both Brettle's legal bases and Fairwind's technical bases for, for the intervention. We will, of course, link to both of these on the website from Nuclear Hot Seat for this episode, as we always do. What kind of timeline are we looking at for a follow-up to the fact that this has been filed now? Well, they have 25 days from last Monday to respond. So they filed the day after Mother's Day, and it looks like right before Father's, they'll respond. And at that point, then Brettel has seven days to respond to that. So it doesn't seem fair, but in fact, it's not bad. They filed their license application back in February, and Brettel had 60 days to appeal it. So it took 60 days to write the appeal. They have 25 days to say why the appeal is all wet, and then we've got seven days to, uh, to respond. So that basically takes you through sometime in June. There'll probably be an ASLB, an Atomic Safety and Licensing Board hearing, where they'll discuss the merits of the case. Almost 95% of the time, the ASLBs side with Vogel. This one's a little different. Because it's an AP-1000, and the only AP-1000 in the country, they have something called an ITAAC. It's sort of pronounced ITAC. They apply for a license, which they did in 2009, and they don't have to apply for an operating license. But they have to identify all the changes that occurred back because of the 2009 application. Well, this is a change, and they didn't identify it. So I think... You know, technically, the case has strong merit, but legally, it looks to us like they've been hiding something for five years because they really didn't want civilians to know about it. If they had found this out five years ago, likely they would have had to stop construction. But at this point, you know, they're so far along, it's hard to, uh, they have momentum on their side. And of course, the NRC wants to get this thing licensed as bad as they do. Remember, there's five commissioners, and all those commissioners are appointed by Congress, and every one of them is pro-nuclear. So it's hard to believe the commissioners want to stop Vogel. On the other hand, there's a legal basis here, a hurdle that they haven't cleared. And the case that Brettel's making is that that legal basis has been violated. Therefore, they have to stop and rectify it, a new seismic analysis and potentially, like in Midland, walking away from the plant because the Boeing Foundation, the dishing foundation, can't be remedied. I mean, after the fact, you're looking at this thing is um, 150 feet across or maybe even more, 200 feet across. It's got reinforcing rod in it, and it's six feet thick solid concrete. Then the mass of it is causing it to sink and sink more in the middle than on the edges. It's a big deal in my mind. And that's not sinking that's going to stop all by itself, is it? Well, they admit it in the application that they have that they will have a program going forward to track the sinking. Again, you know, once you 
There's a saying in the nuclear industry, it's easier to get the NRC's blessing after the fact than, than to get their approval before the fact. And that's that's what's happening here. You know, they'll get the license, they'll run for a year and they'll say, oh, we just sunk a little more. And five years later, oh, we just sunk a little more. So rather than get the approval, they'll, they're seeking for forgiveness. I think that, you know, that's a charade too that should come up in the hearing. And hopefully if there's an adequate investigation, the reasons for this will become clear that they were trying to defy nuclear safety and get this plant built. Is there a danger with ongoing sinking of other than earthquakes? Is there possibly a danger to the containment, to the reactor itself, should they get up and running? Yes, it really depends. We don't know how fast it's sinking. We know it is sinking in walls that were three inches apart are now two inches apart. So the AP-1000 stands for Advanced Passive. There are no pumps inside the plant, and it's designed after a meltdown to gravity cool itself for three days, at which point the theory is you could stick fire hoses in and, and add more water or something. But it's a gravity circulation system that keeps the nuclear reactor cool, which other reactors have pumps and, and things like that. So the advanced passive aspect of it was that you know water flows downhill. Well, if the containment is bowing, uh, you know suddenly the grade that you thought you have isn't there anymore. So it, it would definitely affect the ability of the plant to cool itself after a, after a meltdown. Given the timing of when this is all coming out, is there any possibility of connection with or utilizing the current COVID pandemic as a smokescreen, as something that is distracting people from what is happening at Vogel? Uh, that's a great question. First of all, Vogel has asked for an expedited review on this wall. They want the NRC's approval by August. And the NRC said, well, we can't really do it till November. It's just a big deal. We're going to put 400 hours in on this and we need to think it through. But we'll try to meet your expedited schedule. So you know, here they wait five years and then they beg for a expedited schedule. But as COVID came along, they've already delayed construction for two more months. This application went in before COVID, February, and now they've already delayed when this plan is going to go online. So the urgency to get this thing examined quickly has disappeared. Uh, yet I suspect they'll try to force the NRC to meet a, an arbitrary deadline that no longer has any basis, in fact. Arnie, the work you do and the clarity you bring to it and your ability to explain it so that non-engineering people can understand is really remarkable and it's deeply appreciated. And it's always a great pleasure to have you as a guest here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you. I, I really enjoy the intellect you bring to these discussions too. It's, it's fun to be interviewed by a smart interviewer and I like being on your show. Arnie Gunderson, Chief Engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education. We'll have links up to the report that Arnie filed, plus the Brettle petition on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 465. Activists, Activists shout, out, shout out, shout out, shout out, shout out.
sad to report that S. David Freeman, who steered the nation's largest public utilities and was an early advocate of renewable energy, died on Tuesday, May 12, after suffering a heart attack. He was energy advisor to Presidents Johnson, Nixon, and Carter. And starting in 1977, he led the nation's three largest public utilities. First, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA, the New York Power Authority, and finally the Los Angeles DWP, which he led from 1997 to 2001. Freeman, notable for his big cowboy hat and even bigger steamrolling personality, told a historian that he remained, quote, pretty conventional about nuclear power and the whole power business until the day two women from New Hampshire came to his office in the White House. There were plans to build a nuclear power plant near their homes, they told him, but they had done some research and figured that if people in their area simply conserved energy, there was no need for nuclear power. Freeman said, I listened to them, and I checked it out, and they were right. All of a sudden, it was like a light bulb went off in my head that we were just wasting a tremendous amount of electricity, and we didn't need to build as many plants as we thought we needed to build because it's cheaper to conserve. Dave Freeman was 94. He was a good friend to those who oppose nuclear, and he will be missed. Here's today's final thought. With so much noise in the media about COVID issues, we know that the one that is not being covered is the COVID nuclear connection. And your help is needed to bring that information to the fore. I've been training in some advanced techniques for using Zoom, Facebook Live, and strategies for structuring digital trainings to be more effective than what we've been doing so far. I'll have info on that in the coming weeks as I complete the training. For now, what we can do, what each of us needs to do, is open the media's eyes to the pattern of COVID nuclear issues coming down everywhere, especially in your own backyard. The things that are setting us up for a radioactive future where even if we survive the pandemic, we may not survive the nuclear incursion on our lives that results. So let's not just complain and be clicktivists online and leave it at that. There's something substantive that you, that any of us can do. Rachel Maddow on MSNBC has let it be known that there are open lines of communication between her show and the public, and that everything that gets sent to her related to COVID will be read and considered. I've already been sending her background information pieces on various issues I've been covering here on the show, but I'm only one voice, and we need a very large chorus. So if you have a COVID nuclear story or observation or just want to bring this show to her attention and you want to get some mainstream media attention on it, get the information to her. The email to use is rachel at msnbc.com. I'll have a link up on the website for this episode, nuclearhotseat.com number 465, or you can just Google Rachel Maddow contact. That's where you will get the site. Send it to Rachel. If you don't want to send by email, they've got Twitter, they've got phone numbers, messenger apps. Use whatever form best suits you. Be accurate, civil, and include contact information so they can follow up should they want to. And don't stop at doing it just once. Contact her early and often, especially if there's a change in circumstances near you. We've got to make noise and a lot of it. And while you're at it, 
Get this information out to your local reporters, your local newspapers and radio stations as well. Some doors are open to us, some are not yet open to us, and some we may have to bang down to get through. But we've got to. We must stampede through those doors and make our issues known. Every one of you can help make a difference. On your mark, get set. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 19, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, miningawareness.wordpress.com, latimes.com, wired.com, nears.org, fairwinds.org, thebulletin.org, brettle.org, mothballmillstone.org, spglobal.org, asahi.com, en.yna.co.kr, koreatimes.co.kr, bologna.org, thetimes.co.uk, Newsweek, thestate.com, tri-cityherald.com, and the totally captured slaves to the nuclear industry at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. If you haven't already done so, go to the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page where you can like it, share it, respond to a post, leave a comment. If you have a story tip, a hot lead, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. The easiest way to get Nuclear Hot Seat every week is to sign up to get it delivered via email. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down until you find the yellow box, and sign up for that one email a week with the latest and some notes on the content. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, please take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We will really be grateful for your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby, Halevi, and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that luck is a terrible safety plan when it comes to a nuclear reactor. That's your nuclear wake-up call, so don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.